Amen. It's been a long day of ministry for Jesus. We see that he had healed many people. He cast out many demons. And then as a multitude is gathering around him, he goes up the mountain and begins to preach this three-chapter sermon. Then after the sermon, he comes down. He cleanses a leper. He heals the centurion servant. He makes a pit stop at Peter's house. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then the rest of that afternoon, Jesus is healing the sick and casting out demons out of people. All the while, Jesus has commanded his disciples to depart out to the other side. Here they are in Capernaum. This is the hometown for Jesus, the hometown for Peter, where they would launch out and do different ministry. And it's busy here. There's multitudes. So Jesus commands his disciples, hey, let's go to the other side, the choir side of the lake, and let's go out there. Perhaps the disciples think that they're about to go out on a retreat with Jesus, just relax, hang out by the lake, do some fishing, relax, and hang out with one another. But on their way there, Jesus has this great multitude with him. And it's so interesting, throughout the Gospels, it seems as if whenever there's a large crowd around Jesus, Jesus just drops this truth bomb in the middle of it. As these large crowds gather around Jesus, it seems as if throughout the Gospels, he avoids the crowds. And sadly today, there are many ministries and many churches and many church leaders that are only seeking out the great multitudes. It's so interesting. Throughout the, the Gospels, so much of what we read of Jesus' life-changing work in people happens on an individual level. And I, I implore you this morning, it's so important for us to seek Jesus out among the multitudes and be gathered together as he commands us to do so. But we need to seek Jesus out on an individual level. Just you and him. You alone with him and the word. We need to be seeking him out on an individual level so that we can hear from him and have his life-changing work in us. Now notice the end of verse 18. Who commands them to depart to the other side? Open book test. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that commands the disciples, hey, let's go out to the other side. That will be important later. Then as they're getting ready, they're gathering the boat, all the supplies, it tells us a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This first disciple that we, that we come in contact with is the emotional wannabe disciple. The emotional wannabe disciple. A scribe was someone who within Jewish religion was very high up and very well versed. A scribe was within the sect of the Pharisees, but then even higher than just normal Pharisees. A scribe was someone who was skilled in Jewish law and theology. Someone who would write down the word of God and memorize God's word. So we have this scribe willing to come and follow Jesus. What an incredible benefit for Jesus and his ministry. Perhaps he's checking out Jesus' staff, his assistant pastors, and he's saying, man, four fishermen and a tax collector? That's all this guy got. Wait till I come into town and maybe I can go up the ranks quickly. I'm a scribe after all. 
Perhaps he saw the great multitudes and the authority in which Jesus spoke and the incredible and mighty miracles that Jesus had accomplished. And this scribe declares, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Does Jesus give this scribe an incredible sales pitch? Does Jesus do all he can to not lose this sale, to not lose such a skilled person? Not at all. Jesus hits the scribe with the reality of the cost of discipleship with Jesus Christ. Saying, hey, I know you're a scribe. I know you have a good job. But hey, man, I am homeless. If you don't mind coming and following a homeless man and being homeless with me, come along and join the ride. But don't come following me expecting to gain worldly goods and worldly comforts. So different than the world today. David Guzik says Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples. Unlike many modern day evangelists, he was interested more in quality than in quantity. Sadly, so much of Christianity within America, it's about as easy and as comfortable as possible. And yet so often when there's multitudes, Jesus would hit them with the harshest truths of the word. Multitudes following him. And then what does Jesus say? If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. Say, what? I didn't sign up for cannibalism. What's going on here, right? But those that stick around and ask more questions, they find out what Jesus is saying. We'll see another uh, instance of this. D.A. Carson He says, little has done more harm to the witness of the Christian church than the practice of filling its ranks with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession, talk fluently of experience, but display little of perseverance. Sadly, so many churches are just doing whatever it takes to get volunteers that if you can walk and chew gum at the same time, you've been called to serve at Calvary Chapel, Miami. You're saved. You don't know what saved means. You know how to spell saved. Hey, you've been called to be here and volunteer here at the church. Sadly, many churches, they just pay individuals who aren't even saved to do the work on Sunday morning. We see Jesus wants to make sure men and women have counted the cost and have realized it will take perseverance to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He hits him with the truth. The foxes and the birds have homes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. Yes, he had many people that would open up their homes to him, but Jesus did not have his own home or his own retirement property or his own vacation property on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was all about his father's business. The only time in scripture where we see Jesus having his own place to lay his head was when his body was laid in the tomb. And even then, he only borrowed it for three days. He gave it back, right? He calls himself the Son of Man. This is the first time we see Jesus called the Son of Man in the New Testament. And this phrase will be used 81 times throughout the Gospels. Jesus is here revealing his Messiahship. And he's referencing Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him. And his dominion 
is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, I am the one that has all glory and all dominion and all power and a kingdom which is an everlasting kingdom, and yet I have nowhere to lay my head. We see the humility of Jesus Christ living as a homeless man here on earth for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Would you do this for someone else? Would you let go of all of your savings, all your 401k, all your houses, all your cars, and say, hey, I'm going to get rid of all of this and live as a homeless person so that I could save this other individual? This is what Jesus has done for us. How much we should serve him and lay everything down for him. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 tells us that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You see, Jesus doesn't promise comfort or money or homes or Bugattis or jets. Jesus promises us trials and difficulties. Jesus tells his disciples they will carry you off to prison and they'll bring you before the judges, the magistrates, and the officials. But fear not. Then in verse 21 and 22, we come in contact with the second disciple here. He says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the procrastinating, perfect setup disciple. You see, at first glance, we read this and we think, man, Jesus is pretty harsh. This poor guy, he's on the, right, he's in the, the, the motorcade is there. They're on their way to the funeral. They're on the way to the burial ground. And Jesus says, hey, let the dead bury the dead. Not at all. In fact, Luke chapter 9 verse 59 tells us that Jesus started off saying, follow me. Jesus invites this man just as he had done to the four fishermen, just as he had done to Matthew the tax collector. And after he told the man, hey, come and follow me, then this man gives the excuse, hey, let me first go and bury my father. This man is not saying that his father has just died and they're on their way to the burial grounds. Just give me a little bit of time to mourn, bury the body. No, not at all. This man is currently living with his parents and saying, Lord, after this big season of life, after my parents have passed away, then I will come and follow you. D.A. Carson, he says, the man wanted to follow Jesus, but not just yet. He knew it was good and he knew that he should do it, but he felt that there was a good reason why he could not do it right now. If the scribe was too quick in promising, this disciple was too slow in performing. Are you making excuses right now why you can't follow Jesus? Are you saying, man, the proverbial next season will be easier? I hope you've realized that in life. Is the next season ever really that much easier or quieter or less hectic? 
since I first got married, I've had this friend that we talk every once in a while, and we always talk about how busy we are. And we always say, man, I can't believe how busy I am. It's never going to get busier than this. And then what happens the next time we call? I wish I was as busy as last time. I wish I could go back six months ago. I wish I could go back to a year ago and be that busy. Our life, I believe if it's healthy and good, your responsibility is only going to grow. If you're, if you're growing and maturing as a woman or a man of God, the people that you're accountable to, the people that you're accountable for, the people that you're responsible for, it's going to grow. And that's a good thing. But if we're making excuses saying, once, man, Lord, once I hit the lotto, then I'll come and serve you, God. Once the house is paid for, then I'll come and serve you. Once this perfect opportunity comes up, Lord, then I will come and serve you. We need to be so careful with this. Jesus said to him, you follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus says, let the spiritually dead be the ones that are going and digging graves and burying people. But you, if you're spiritually alive, you come and you follow me. David Guzik points out, Jesus pressed the man to follow him now and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must not be put ahead of following Jesus Christ. Jesus must come first. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he is not our Lord at all. Who is the Lord of your life? Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your comfort? Who truly is your God? We can turn to Luke chapter 14. And in Luke 14, we see another one of these instances. Great multitudes following Jesus. Perhaps the disciples are getting excited. Man, the tithe is going to get crazy. Look at how many people are coming. The church is finally going to explode. And then notice the Bible study that Jesus decides to teach on with the great multitudes. Luke chapter 14. Luke 14 verse 25. It says, Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned (laughs) and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The disciples must be cringing. What in the world is going on right now? We finally have the multitudes. We finally have what's going on. Jesus, what in the world is going on? And he says, hey, if you do not hate your father and mother, if you don't hate your wife and children, your brothers and sisters, and even your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? You jump down to verse 33 and Jesus says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus telling us to leave our family behind, leave our homes behind, and leave everyone in jeopardy? Not at all. But once again, Jesus is pointing to lordship belonging to him and him alone. You can't say, Jesus, I I love you, but I need to go do this instead. Jesus, I love you. My kids are in sin, so I have to keep them in my home. Not at all. 
We know that the prodigal son, the perfect heavenly father, said, hey, you want to go live that way? You go and do that. We need to have Jesus as the true Lord of our life. Let the dead bury their dead. Charles Spurgeon, he says, much of the concerns of politics, party tactics, committee meetings, social reforms, and innocent amusements, and so forth, may be very fitly described as burying the dead. Much of this is very needful, proper, and a commendable work, but still only such a form of business as unregenerate men can do, as well as disciples of Jesus. Let them do it. But if we are called to preach the gospel, let us give ourselves wholly to our sacred calling. Family, have you been called by Jesus Christ? Is Jesus asking you this morning, come and follow me, and yet you're procrastinating? Perhaps he's wanting you to go deeper in with him, but you're waiting for the perfect situation to come and follow him. I encourage you, remember the disciples. They left their businesses. They left their family businesses. They left their government jobs to come and follow Jesus. What's the one thing you're holding back and not letting go to Jesus? May we give those things up and stop procrastinating today. We go now to verse 23. And it says, Now when he had gotten into the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O oh, you of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark's account gives us a lot more details on what went on, what the disciples were saying, and what was the mindset in the disciples and even in Jesus. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says, On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. So when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Again, right after Jesus speaks to the multitudes, after he's dealt with all these healings, all these miracles, and these two different disciples, Jesus says, all right, guys, let's cross over to the other side. And it's important for us to remember the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus told the disciples, let us cross over to the other side. 
Jesus didn't say, hey, let's cross under to the other side. He didn't say, we're going to get a submarine and we're going to sink and just wash up on shore. He didn't say, let us die on our way to the other side. No, the words of Jesus, let us cross over to the other side. Jesus finally dismisses the multitudes. They've interacted with the emotional disciple. They've interacted with the procrastinating disciple. And now the disciples take Jesus and they listen to his command to cross over to the other side. We know at least four of these men were fishermen. And they weren't just fishermen, weekend warriors. No, they were commercial fishermen. They've grown up on this lake. Their dads, their parents were commercial fishermen on this lake. So they knew what they were dealing with. They're saying, Jesus, you're a good carpenter. Jesus, you're an incredible teacher and healer. Now you rest and let us do what we do best. That's the wording that Mark tells us when they say, we will take him. Jesus, you did all this. Now it's our job. You relax. You just hang out there and let me do my thing. Do we not do that to Jesus and his word? Lord, this is my thing. This is what I do for a living. I know what your word says, but Jesus, you hang out over here. You go to sleep. You close your eyes for a second and let me do my thing over here. We need to be careful of trusting in our flesh. We'll look at that later. It tells us that a great tempest arose. In the Greek, it's where we get our word seismic. Seismic activity. You can think of the earthquake. You can think of a seismic storm. You can think of Godzilla coming up out of the ocean, although that's not real. But this seismic storm arises on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was known to have storms stir up very quickly. The Sea of Galilee, it's really a lake. It's a lake and it's there at a lower altitude than the rest of the surrounding mountains and surrounding hills. And within these surrounding hills and mountains, there are many valleys which have wind and rain pushed through them and they sweep across the Great Lake. The boats that these men were using were not like our modern boats. There's no sonar, there's no radio, there's no flare guns, there's nothing like this. One thing that always amazes me is how ancient men used to go out and just sail across the sea. A lot of them died, but hey, they used to just go out and they used to just do it. If you've ever been out in the ocean at night, I love it, it's beautiful, but there's a bit of fright to it all. When you turn on that motor and it kicks on, you think, thank you, Jesus, right? And you start heading back to shore. But these boats were nothing like our modern boats. If you look and you research it, it's basically an oversized canoe with oars. These boats, they're about this tall. That's as tall as they are. They are fishing boats for a lake. They're not boats meant for the open sea and for the ocean and for huge storms. And how many people enjoy being in a storm? It's nice being in your bed at nighttime and there's a storm outside. But being in a storm outside in the middle of the night... While you're in a canoe, it's not so fun anymore. One thing we can gather spiritually here is that life has many storms. Many storms in which we are ill-equipped to handle in our own strength. It's not if there will be storms, it is when there will be storms. It's been said you are either in the middle of a storm right now, you've just come out of a storm, or you're about to go into a storm. It's just a fact of life. And we need to be careful because oftentimes we can judge people who are going through storms and trials. 
Oftentimes, we're not like Job. We're like Job's friends. And the only reason these men are in a storm, it's because of their obedience to Jesus Christ. Who's the one that said, hey, let's go to the other side? It was Jesus. These men are in this storm because of their obedience to Jesus Christ. Did Jesus know that there'd be a storm that evening? Absolutely. He knows all. He knows everything. It's not like when Jesus woke up, he's like, whoa, what's going on here, right? The boat's filling up. What's going on? No, he knew exactly what was happening. We will go through storms, and these storms will reveal what's going on in our lives. It will reveal where our trust is, who our God is, and where our faith is. We can turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, I love the character arc of Peter throughout Scripture. We have this man. He's in the boat right now, seasoned fisherman, and yet he's freaking out. And notice what he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We will go through various trials, and the reason is the genuineness of our faith will be revealed. Do you really have faith and trust in Jesus? Right? Perhaps these disciples, they looked at these other two fake disciples, right? the emotional guy and the procrastinating guy, and they're thinking, ah, we're hot stuff, right? We're the real disciples of Jesus Christ. These two guys couldn't hang it. And yet, a few moments later, they're freaking out. Lord, do you even care about us? Do you even love us? Trials reveal where we are at. Be careful. Know the lies of the enemy. When you're going through a trial and you say, Lord, I don't deserve this. That's Satan speaking. When you're going through a trial and you're saying, Lord, have I not done enough for you? That's, the, that's Satan speaking. Lord, I love you. I serve you. How, why is this happening to me? Be careful of the enemy. Trials will come. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Notice what Peter has to say once again when it comes to storms and trials. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When trials come into our lives, is that not our initial reaction? How could this happen to me? We think it's strange. We think it's different. What happens in life is we're used to normal weather. On Monday morning, I wake up at this time. I have my coffee, I read my Bible, I make breakfast, I go to work 9 to 5, I go home, I sit in traffic, then I go home, I make dinner, I wash up, then I watch TV, and then I go to bed. And then on Tuesday I do this, on Wednesday I do this, and we have our perfect weather pre-planned. And then whenever there's any storm, anything that shakes up that weather, we are surprised 
sometimes frustrated, and sometimes even angry. Peter says, hey, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. It's not if storms will happen. It is a question of when will the storm happen. And we should be ready. We should be ready for the suffering. We should be ready for the storm, knowing that through the suffering and the storm, His glory will be revealed And there should be great and exceeding joy in it. When we see his glory revealed in it, when he answers the miracle, when he gives us that that moment of peace, when he gives us the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, we are to be glad with exceeding joy. We saw it in Matthew chapter 5. It's not a question of if the floods will rise and if the wind will blow against the house. It is when the floods will rise up. And when the wind will beat against that house. Finally, James chapter 1, verse 2, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If we handle our storms and trials with patience, God will grow our patience even more so. The sad thing that happens with many believers is they have zero patience when storms come. Storms come, trials come, and that's it. No more church, no more Bible. I can't believe this happened to me. I deserve better than this. I thought I'd come to church and God would fix everything. Not the case. Allow patience to have its perfect work in you. And it's going to continue to grow you and mature you. Again, trials reveal who we truly are and what we are really made up of. Hopefully our inner man will praise, honor, and glorify Jesus Christ. And if in the past it hasn't, I encourage you, pray. Repent. Repent to the Lord. Repent to your spouse that you blew up on in the middle of the trial. And repent from your sins and ask for help. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. If the disciples had no faith, again, don't think it's strange. When we lack faith, when we have an instance when we're messing up saying, God, what's going on? Do you even care about me? Then confess your sins, repent, and just get back on following the Lord and being patient with him. Back to verse 37, it says, A great windstorm arose, the waves beat into the boat so that it's already filling. Again, it's the middle of the night. There's a great windstorm. The waves are crashing against the boat to the point that the boat is filling up with water. It's nice when a boat is filled with fish. It's not nice when a boat is filled up with water. And these men, they knew what to do during a storm. It's not their first storm that they've dealt with on this lake. So they're probably telling other guys, hey, you tax collector, do this. Hey, you do this. Hey, you do that. Hey, you bail water. You keep rowing this way. You keep rowing that way. But as they keep looking in the boat, the water level's not going down. The water level's just going up higher and higher and higher. At what point does panic set in when you begin to seriously be afraid and ask for help? How much do we trust in our own flesh, thinking that we can figure out our way out of this trial or out of this storm, instead of just stopping and asking God for help? Again, imagine for a bunch of grown men who are just getting to know one another, 
Who was the first one to actually start freaking out? I'm sure they're all trying to keep their cool. Everything's fine. Everything's cool. Everything's okay. At least for me and my pride, there'd be a long fuse before I let the other guys know I'm freaking out. We're all going to die, right? So who was the first one? Maybe it was Matthew, the tax collector. I've never been on a boat before. What in the world is going on here? Right? We don't know. All the while, the disciples are panicking. The storm is raging. And yet, where's Jesus? Asleep. Asleep on the boat. Asleep in the stern, asleep on a pillow. After a long day of ministry and teaching in the hot sun, Jesus was knocked out. You see, Sunday naps are biblical. After a long day of ministry, (laughs) Jesus goes and he takes a nap. There's some people that they can nap anywhere. There's a family I can think of. I've seen both of them asleep on boats at two separate times. One on the second floor of the boat. We're cruising, and she's asleep on the ladder. We're all afraid she's going to fall off. And her brother's asleep on another boat going 30 miles an hour, bouncing with the waves, right? And yet our Lord, he's asleep, not just because he's exhausted, but because he's resting in his faith and love of the Father for his life. Stephen Coy says, the Lord's sleep was not only the sleep of weariness, it was also the rest of faith. For there is a rest of faith as well as a watch of faith. It happens, I think the Lord in his and his blessed creation of marriage he gives one worrier and one is like super calm person if you have two worriers hey we'll pray for you come up afterwards for service right if you have two super calm easygoing people again we'll come up and pray but just be careful just because your spouse isn't freaking out with you just thank the lord that you have someone there that's a little bit relaxed in the storm but if many of the apostles throughout the book of acts could sleep in prison when they knew they were sentenced to death the next morning how much more faith would Jesus have in God the Father? You could think of Peter. Peter's asleep in prison on death row, and an angel has to appear to him, and he's looking at Peter, and he literally has to wake Peter up and say, all right, Peter, let's get out of here. If Peter could sleep that night, how much more Jesus? We could think of Paul and Silas. They're on death row, and yet what are they doing in the middle of the night after being beaten? singing and singing songs and praising God. How would we respond if the President of the United States had you in prison and you know you were going to be put to death tomorrow? Would you be able to sleep easy that night? Would you be able to rest and relax knowing that your Father in Heaven knows your needs before you even ask Him? We go back to the narrative. The disciples, they finally come to him and they wake him up saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Again, this was their specialty. They were resting in their flesh as long as possible. So when was the breaking point that they let go of the flesh, they realized their need and they cried out to the master. Once again, storms reveal where our trust truly is in. Is your trust in yourself How strong you are, how tough you are, how mentally tough you are. Is your trust in your family? Hey, as long as I have my spouse, I'll be okay. Is your trust in your kids? Hey, my kids, they haven't turned out that bad. All of my trust is there. Is it in your health, in your job, your money, your 401k, your doomsday prepper bunker that you have out there in the Everglades, right? Where is your trust? The danger is that in our natural state, where we put our trust is in our own strength and in our own flesh. Or we trust other people. As long as this person's here with me, I'll be okay. 
Jeremiah 17.5 warns us. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. If all of your trust is in a person or even in your own strength, it's a danger. You're cursed. There's only one way to go, and that's downward. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, famous portion of Scripture, yet we always need to grow in it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Friend, where is your trust? Is it in a person? Is it in the president? Is it in the future president and a candidate? Or is your trust in the Lord? They finally wake him up. Jesus, he's finally awakened. He's finally woken up. In the storm, he's asleep. The boat's rocking. He's asleep. The disciples are shouting commands at one another. He's asleep. Crackling of the thunder. He's still asleep. There's water on him. Imagine being soaked and still asleep. He's sleeping fine. But when the disciples call out to him, he wakes up and rises instantly. And what a way for us to view prayer. David Guzik, he says, Jesus is like the mother who sleeps through all kinds of racket. But at the slightest noise from her little baby, she instantly wakes up. Guys, Jesus is just waiting for us to cry out to him. We hold on to our strength. We hold on to our fear. We hold on to our anxiety. But you just have to say the word crying out to him, and he will wake up and be ready to speak to you. They say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. In Mark, it tells us that they say to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I know we never say that to Jesus in a storm or in a trial. God, do you even love me? God, where is your love here? How could you let me go through this? Again, the disciples hadn't read this chapter yet. They were not crying out to him to do the supernatural thing when you speak to the ocean and the waves and the lake. No, they were crying out out of fear and desperation. They thought they were all going to die, and perhaps they were annoyed at the indifference of Jesus. They're all working, bailing, rowing, storm, freaking out, and Jesus just knocked out asleep. They allowed the storm and their fear of what may be lost to overwhelm them to the point where they forgot what Jesus had said and who Jesus is. So often we can forget of the character of Jesus Christ. We can forget about the character of our Heavenly Father. We can forget about the Word and what Jesus has to say to us. Hold on to His Word. Hold on to the character of who Jesus is. Charles Spurgeon, he says, There may be both a sleeping Christ and a sleeping church, but neither Christ nor his church can perish. If our Lord be asleep, he is asleep near the helm. He has only to put his hand out and steer the vessel at once. He is asleep, but he only sleeps until we cry more loudly to him. When we get into such trouble that we cannot help ourselves and feel our entire dependence on him, then he will reveal his power. The trick is to feel your dependence of him earlier and earlier. Don't wait till you're paralyzed, right, and you're in a hospital bed to realize that you're dependent on him. Realize your need for him sooner rather than later. 
We can think of what he said in Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those that realize how poor they are spiritually, they'll be more and more blessed. So when we go through storms, remember what Jesus has said and remember the person and the character of Jesus Christ. He wakes up and he says to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. They had no faith. Why did they have no faith? What, what had Jesus just accomplished this past day? He's, healing, he's healed a leper. He's healed people with just a word. He's cast out demons with just a word. They've, they forgot what Jesus had told them. Let us cross over to the other side. And yet they tell Jesus, do you even care that we are perishing? They had no faith in him. They allowed fear to take control of their minds and of their bodies. G. Campbell Morgan says, The storm could not disturb him, but the unbelief of the disciples did. D.A. Carson, he says, He does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. There's no doubt fear and anxiety grips many people today. There's no doubt that it, that it grips many believers today. There's no doubt that some, because of chemical makeups or the way that they've been raised, struggle with it more than others. But the fact that fear is still the enemy of faith is still the truth and the fact of the matter. As believers, we need to hold on to the truth that the just shall live by faith. Take those fears and take them to prayer. Take them up to the Lord. Don't just hold on to that fear and anxiety. Don't allow it to just reign over your life and over your heart. Jesus, he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. Mark tells us that he said, peace be still and the wind ceased and instantly there was a great calm. Jesus uses very similar language when he spoke to the demons. Be still is the same Greek word for muzzling an animal's mouth. Some people believe that Satan was the one behind this storm. If the Son of God and the future of the church, the future apostles and leaders of the church were all in the same boat, if Satan could seek it, he could at once be done away with all of his big competition. However, instantly there was a great calm. And there's sort of a creepiness to this, right? Just a storm raging, wind blowing, waves coming over the boat, and then instantly a great calm. If you've ever not listened to the news and gone outside during a hurricane, um, not that I've ever done it, no, I've done it before, right? But if you've been out during the eye of the storm, it is eerie. It is eerie. All this noise, all of this chaos, and then as the eye passes over, it is just calm and still. And this is what brought even more fear to the disciples. Mark tells us that they feared exceedingly. The disciples, they're still soaking wet. Jesus, we don't know if he just goes back to sleep. Right? I don't know, right? Maybe he just goes right back to sleep afterwards. But they're freaking out. And they say to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'm sure there are many psalms that are coming to the mind of these Jewish men. Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? 
Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its, wave, when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 93, verse 4, The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Psalm 107, verse 23, Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. Finally, we could turn to Proverbs chapter 30. And this, this one is amazing, just the context of it all. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Proverbs 30, verse 4 says, Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name, if you know? We know it, right? It's Jesus. Jesus is his name. So whether you're coming out of a storm, whether you're in the middle of a storm, or you're about to go into a storm, remember what Jesus has said, and remember the character of Jesus Christ. And respond properly in the storm with faith and joy and patience. When we respond properly to the storm, there are three things that happen. Number one, we grow in faith and in the likeness of Jesus Christ. When you go through a financial storm or a health storm, when the next storm comes, you have a certain threshold where you say, Hey, we've been, this, we've been through this before. Jesus has come through. He's going to be faithful. Your faith has grown if you respond to it properly. You also grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That you hit the next storm and you're not freaking out like all the disciples. In fact, you're just relaxed more than ever before. How are you so calm? Man, I went through the storm last time. I worried like crazy. My kid had a cold. I put it on Google. It said they had stomach cancer, right? But it ended up being nothing. So I'm just not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to worry so much this time, right? You grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Second thing that happens when we respond properly to the storm, we learn more about God's love and God's grace. The storms and trials, they, they push us to either press into the Lord more or if our flesh and fear take over, we lose the patience and we just run away. But when we are in that storm and trial, if we press into God, we will learn new bounds of His love and grace. John Bunyan, a man who was imprisoned for years because of his faith in Jesus Christ, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress while he was in prison. And he has this to say, In times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God. I'll say it again. In times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God. What's the last thing that happens when we properly deal with a storm? We bring glory to God. We, we bring Him glory. We see His miracles in the middle of the storm. We see the gospel being able to be shared because we're in the storm. Or perhaps another believer sees you and they're blown away. How do they have so much faith? 
How are they so relaxed? How are they able to go through the toughest storms that God has, and yet they're so calm, and you're able to share the glory of God and bring glory to the Lord? Now we come to verse 28, and we finish up here with this story. It says, When he had come to the other side to the country of the Gergesians, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. You see, the disciples, they're getting ready for their retreat with Jesus on the quiet side of the lake. Again, I think we can all put ourselves in their sandals, right? They've had a busy week of ministry. Jesus has done many miracles, many healings. Then he goes up on the mountain. He preaches a three-chapter sermon. Then on his way down off the mountain, he heals a leper. He heals a centurion servant. He makes the pit stop at Peter's house. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then he spends the rest of the afternoon healing all of the sick people that were brought to him. And all of the demon-possessed people being brought to him. If that wasn't enough, then on his way to the boats, they proceed to have two conversations with different men talking about discipleship. They finally make it to the boat. And what happens? A great storm arises. Even more exhaustion settles in. Jesus is knocked out on the boat, but these guys are working all night long, fearing for their lives. The storm finally clears. They make it to shore, and we can envision them unloading all of their stuff. Perhaps they're unloading their beach chairs, their umbrellas, right? They got their fishing rods. They're excited for a week with Jesus. They got their Virgin Mary pina coladas ready, right? And they're ready to relax and hang out with Jesus. But then what happens right when they get out of the boat? Mark 5 tells us, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even his chains. Matthew tells us there were two demon-possessed men. Mark focuses on one of these two demon-possessed men. Again, these disciples must have been exhausted at this point. Lord, what is going on? When are we going to relax? Maybe that's the season that you're in and the Lord is just causing you to press into Jesus even more. Mark tells us that they had put uh, chains and shackles on this man, but he had supernatural strength through the demons. He would just break them. He would spend all day, all night, naked in the mountains and in the tombs, screaming and yelling and cutting himself with the stones. Back in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, they cried out to Jesus saying, What have we to do with you? Jesus, you son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? It's so interesting because the disciples see the work of Jesus calming the storm, calming the seas, calming the wind, and they ask, who can this be? The demons proclaim loudly, Jesus, son of God, and yet they wanted nothing to do with him. Charles Spurgeon says, this is the old cry, mind your own business. Do not interfere with our trade. Let us alone and go elsewhere. Devils never like to be interfered with, but if the devils have nothing to do with Jesus, he has something to do with them. And there's a great danger for us here. Those that have heard so much of God's word, if you have the proper understanding and doctrine of who Jesus is, and yet we can refuse the work of Jesus in our lives. 
We can say, I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. But just don't touch this idol. Don't touch this area of my life. Jesus, what do you have to do with this area and this idol? It is so dangerous for us to believe that. That is what James calls a demonic faith. In James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, You believe that there's one God and you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? I encourage you, if Jesus is truly Lord of your life, let him be Lord of all your life. Don't hold back certain areas saying, what, what do you have to do with this, Jesus? This is my hobby. This is my freedom in Christ. These are my kids. What, what do you have to do with this? No, you got to allow him to completely rule and reign. Mark tells us that Jesus says to him, come out of the man unclean spirit. And then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Also, he begged him earnestly that they would not send them out of the country. Back to Matthew 8, it says, Now a good way off from them, there were a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. A Roman legion would be 6,000 soldiers. So we don't know, this man has 6,000 demons inside of him? What is going on here? Yet Jesus says, hey, come out of him. And the demons are begging and asking Jesus, hey, can you please let us go into the swine? This is so important. Some people, they, they go off here into a pita sermon and give reasons why Jesus killed the pigs, right? They're crying about the pigs. Not at all. What we should realize here is there are believers that get obsessed with demons. There's demons everywhere, right? You sneezed, God bless you. That was a demon that just came out of you. You go into the parking lot, you go to start your car, you got, you got a demon in your starter. You got to pray and cast that demon out. You can't overcome pornography, you got to say the demon of pornography. You can't do this, that's a demon. You do this, that's a demon. We see the demons have to beg and plead with Jesus if they can go into the pigs. How much more is Jesus going to protect and love his sons and daughters? You don't have to fear about a demon having rule and reign over your life. No, take rule and reign of your life and realize the sin and the flesh that's going on in your life. Take ownership and allow the Lord to rule and reign in your life. Then he says to them, go. And when they went out of the herd of swine, suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and they perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And Mark, it tells us that they come afterwards to see Jesus, and they see one of the two men that was demon-possessed, that had legion, sitting down and clothed in his right mind. And yet they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And what's the response of the city? The whole city is unified. The city's been praying for unity. They all, they all have unity. And what are they unified on? In asking Jesus, in begging Jesus to depart from their region. Family, are we more concerned with the swine than our Savior? Are we more concerned with the pigs and their livelihood than the people that Jesus wants to save? 
Are we more concerned with our money and our pocket? Hey, I got to do business this way so I can make the right dollar amount instead of being concerned with what does the Savior want to do in my life? They beg him, hey, leave us. And we see Jesus, he doesn't force himself into that city. He doesn't say, you know who I am? You know how desperately you need me? No. Mark chapter 5, 18. We can turn there and we'll close up here. Worship team, you guys can start coming up. Mark chapter 5, verse 18 says, When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. Do you know what a great test is if you're truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? How do you deal with the little word, no? When Jesus tells you no, how do you deal? How do you respond? Do you freak out? Do you flesh out? Or do you say, okay, Lord, I can't go in this direction. Okay, Lord, what direction can I go in? This man, he just wanted to jump into ministry with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, go home to your friends. Go home to your family and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. It tells us he departed and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis. These are ten big cities. And he proclaimed in each of these ten cities all that Jesus had done for him. And they all marveled. You see, family, Jesus, he doesn't require us to pay him back on his salvation of our lives. All he asks of us is to go home and tell your friends. Go home and tell your family. Go home and tell your coworkers what great things God has done for you and how much compassion he has bestowed upon you and your life. So which disciple are you? Which disciple am I? Am I the emotional wannabe disciple proclaiming all these great things I'm going to do for Jesus? However, I'm just seeking my own comfort. Am I that procrastinating disciple, always waiting for the perfect season, saying, Jesus, next season, next month, next year, next year, then I'll come and serve you? Am I the fearful disciple, going through the storm and questioning God's love for my life? Or am I that disciple, telling and proclaiming to friends and family and strangers what great things the Lord has done for me and how great of a compassion he's had upon my life? Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching and will find doing. Family, is that us? Are we those servants that we realize this whole life is about serving Jesus? And I'm going to be about my father's business. So hey, let's all stand and we'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front. Lord, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word and Lord, we just pray, Lord, help us, Lord. Help us to just receive your word, Lord. In humility, Lord, and gratitude, God, whatever you've spoken to us, whatever you've revealed to us, Lord, I pray that it truly would come, Lord, to a heart that is good soil, Lord. And Lord, we do, we pray for our friends and family in the middle of those storms right now, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd encourage them, Lord. Help us as the body of Christ to be praying for them, Lord, to be encouraging them, Lord, to be loving on them. And God, whatever you've called us to do this morning, Lord, help us to not hold back, God. Help us to just lay it all down, Lord, to lay those burdens and those sins, Lord, 
Lord, but also to lay down our idols, God. To lay down those other things that perhaps we're loving a little bit more than you in this season. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your great compassion and patience with us, Lord. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.